Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mick West, this is Brian Keating, Into the Impossible Podcast. How are you today? Where are you joining us from? Doing great. I'm joining you from Sacramento. And uh, yeah, I must say that Arthur C. Clarke was one of my favorite science fiction authors when I was growing up. And I also watched him on TV a lot. He had a TV show in Britain. So I'm a big Arthur C. Clarke fan. Very good. I am honored to be the co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And Arthur had many, many sayings, one of which I use as the title of this podcast, which is, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And another one, which will come up today undoubtedly, is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And the third one, which we open all of our regularly scheduled interviews with, is that uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we're going to talk about some magical technology today, perhaps, uh, that uh, has been reported. And I want to talk about some of the implications of this technology, if it's true, if it's if it's uh, uh, if it, it did actually exist, and and some of the evidence that we have as a scientist. I'm always, of course, interested not so much in belief but in evidence. And I want to harken back to that great uh, hunter of evidence, and that is uh, Carl Sagan. He was not a knight like uh, like Arthur C. Clarke was, but he did say things such as extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now. Mick, I'm a scientist. I never reach into a bag that says, uh, you know, here's the extraordinary evidence. Uh, I don't know about you, but first, can we get a, a little quick recap for listeners in my podcast? Um, can you give me a quick recap of how you came to study uh, such phenomena that are unexplained, first of all? Sure. Sure. Well, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm actually a former video game programmer, which uh, you might think uh, doesn't suit me well for doing this type of thing. But it's actually a lot of the the mathematics that I use in analyzing UFO videos are the exact same mathematics that I used uh, programming video games, because you have to do the same type of uh, calculations to figure out where things are in 3D space and how you transform one to the other. And the very simple physics that you do in video games is often all the physics you actually need to figure out certain things that are going on in uh, UFO videos. So I kind of got interested in uh, UFOs maybe about four years ago. And before that, I was doing a lot of investigation into various conspiracy theories, one of which was the chemtrails conspiracy theory. So I got really interested in tracking down where planes are in space and things like that. And that just naturally translated into the uh, the UFO realm. And I started looking at these interesting UFO videos and trying to figure out what they were showing. And recently, there's been an upsurge in interest uh, in all different venues. I started to get interested in this, uh, courtesy of a very good friend of mine who's, uh, I call him, you know, the atomic clock, Eric Weinstein, because uh, mm-hmm. they say a broken clock is right twice a day. But, you know, Eric's been right about an awful lot of things, and it's it's very hard to dismiss what he is interested in. And so I, he, I take him very seriously uh, from all sorts of things like lab leaks of uh, certain things that uh, shall not be named currently uh, to... Uh, to uh, other sorts of things that might be considered fringe or conspiracy. Uh, he tends to be right more often than not. And anything that interests him piques his interest will certainly pique my interest. And so um, he's uh, sort of more convinced than, than I've seen him in a long time that there's something here, that there's some uh, something to pay attention to. Uh, so 
that's good enough for me to at least pay attention to it. Now, I'm a physicist. I'm an experimental physicist. He's a theoretical, he's actually a mathematician by training, but interested in the theoretical implications of such technology. He's made statements on Clubhouse and elsewhere that, you know, he's curious. Who knows about these phenomena? Who is watching these phenomena? Uh, we've had conversations with Ryan Graves on Clubhouse and, um, and, and on and off, who is one of the fighter pilots who's at least been interviewed by 60 Minutes. Maybe he's watching, maybe he's not. Uh, he's a very generous individual. Um, as well as Alex and Dietrich, uh, who's, who's shown a great deal of class and dignity in talking about this. And I believe that these individuals who have provided eyewitness accounts are credible. They're highly trained. They're incredibly patriotic and motivated. I don't think there are ill uh, intentions here, but there's certainly a lot of passion involved. I don't want to talk about the, the why people are motivated to do things, but um, to what do you attribute uh, this most recent upsurge? Is it this Marco Rubio, you know, in, instigated report, this Pentagon data dump? What is contributing to it? And why, you know, why now? What's the Nancy Kerrigan, you know, kind of background on all this? Why, why now? Why me? Well, I think Eric's take really is about uh, whether smoke this fire. And that's really what he's looking at. He's seeing that there's a lot of talk about it going on at uh, relatively high levels. You know, we've recently had uh, former President Obama talk about it a couple of times in different situations, and people are are bringing it up. Uh, I think what we're seeing is kind of a, a culmination of something that's been going on for a number of years. And you can kind of trace it back to about four years ago with the publication of the New York Times article uh, titled uh, Glowing Auras and Black Money which kind of revealed the existence of this, uh, this Pentagon program called ATIP, which was uh, in, in part uh, supposedly studying UAPs or UFOs. And it was also looking into various types of advanced technology like you know, warp drives, potentially you know, hypothetical things and different types of energy sources and whatnot. But you know, this story came out and with, with that came a couple of videos that looked like uh, initially they were really impressive videos of UFOs. And people started looking at these videos and it got on the media. And that kind of started a feedback loop that's been going on, I think, for about the last four years, really. And what we're seeing now is in some ways a culmination uh, of that that uh, that kind of media tsunami of of interest fueling the public interest, which fuels more interest, and then politicians get interested in it as well, and uh, it just kind of has been on a roll ever since then. But I don't, you know, saying that I don't think it's just simply uh, an issue of the media promoting this and these people promoting this. There's also very real issues that are going on that are kind of related to the whole uh, phenomenon. You know, we have a real issue with unidentified objects. And you know, if the Navy can't identify something that's in their airspace, that's a real issue. So it's not like there's, there's nothing going on. But I think we do perhaps have a bit of a, a conflation of two things. We have all this media interest, which is really driven by the idea that these might be aliens. And then we have a bunch of uh, real issues, which have to do with like things like drones and uh, unidentified airspace incursions. But it's all kind of coming to the head, and I'm kind of hopeful that this uh, coming report might resolve a few questions. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, kind of slated at the end of the Trump administration, initiated by Marco Rubio and others, talked about in a recent interview on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks uh, back. And that had a six-month fuse about to expire in uh, June. 
mm-hmm. and that um, you know kind of set the wheels in motion, at least in my mind, that this was sort of interesting. Although I've been saying you know this might be kind of the last opportunity if it turns out to be nothing, and and so in talking with Eric on Clubhouse and elsewhere, I've been saying you know may, might this not be a case of you know uh, buy the rumor, sell the news. If if folks are going to get interested about it, uh, we might want to capitalize on attention uh, for those that might have purposes other than the pure actual uh, investigation of scientific phenomena. Yeah. I think a lot of people are actually uh, who are promoting this are actually already convinced and they're not really so much interested in the scientific investigation uh, of are these amazing phenomena or are these natural phenomena. They're actually convinced that these are, well, in many cases, they're convinced that they are aliens. You know, the way that they talk about it, it's not human, essentially. And so you've got kind of a, you know, two things there. You've got people trying to promote the idea that these are aliens and then you've got people trying to figure out what they actually are. Mm-hmm. Now, in my field of uh, astronomy, we have a tradition actually called great debates. These go back hundreds of years, actually back to the t- time of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, etc. Continuing through 100 years ago, exactly last year, what was called the great debate, the size of the universe, the scope of the universe is the Milky Way, the entirety of the universe was actually called the great debate, even though it was just one of many. And I actually feel that debate is almost pointless in science. <laughs> it's very hard to convince somebody of a uh, of an opinion, especially as Upton Sinclair said, if his or her job depends on it not believing a fact to be true. Uh, but I do believe that uh, that the perspective of two different opposing sides can be valuable at revealing truth. And for that reason, I've had on diametrically opposed forces on the Into the Impossible podcast. I've had on Michael Saylor, perhaps the world's most preeminent proponent of Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And I've had on his arch nemesis, Peter Schiff. Uh, as well as as other proponents of gold versus uh, blockchain. Not at the same time. I didn't have them debate each other. I've had on Noam Chomsky and his uh, ideological alter ego, Ben Shapiro. Uh, I don't know people that have had on, you know, such diametrically opposed forces. I've had on uh, Kamran Vafa at Harvard, and I've had on uh, Michio Kaku, the foremost proponents of string theory in the universe as I know it. And I've had on, as I said, Eric Weinstein, Sabine Hassenfelder and and many other great opponents of string theory. So I am not unaccustomed to this. And I have had commitments from uh, some of the pilots uh, who have uh, been involved in some of these uh, tentative commitments, I should say, and I don't want to say which ones, uh, to come on the Into the Impossible podcast. And I'm grateful for that, uh, not only for their patriotism far beyond anything I would ever show. Uh, but I do want to say that I think it's, it's useful as I will ask them, I want to ask you, for your perspective on their report. Um, on their reports and for uh, I'm going to ask them on their perspective on your report. So some of the reports that have been made in, uh, on Lex Fridman's podcast, who's a friend of mine and and, and has, has been very vocal about these things, um, is it not possible that because you are not an expert in uh, in the FLIR systems and the pods that are installed on the on the on the Super Hornets that were involved in the 2004 Nimitz encounter, uh, which was not far from where I am now in San Diego. Uh, you're not an expert, you're not operating this, shouldn't you be contacting engineers at Raytheon to learn how to use this? Uh, uh, Isn't it possible that you're falling into the confirmation bias fallacy that's really befuddled astronomer scientists ever since the time of Galileo up through Einstein and beyond? 
Sure, and I would love to talk to Raytheon. And I've, I've tried to contact them a couple of times and got nothing. Other people have tried to contact them on my behalf, and they've said basically, well, you know, we re refer you to the, the users of the equipment for what's actually going on. Uh, so, you know, I, I would really like to talk to experts. I've had people who uh, say they're experts in the, the FLIR system, uh, which is not really the same thing exactly, but the uh, rebut me. But, you know, essentially it's, you know, I kind of disagree with them because I, I think that they're not actually understanding my argument. But it becomes very problematic because, you know, here's me, you know, a former video game programmer who is certainly not someone with much experience in, in these systems. And I'm putting forward theories and hypotheses and other people who ostensibly have more experience than me say that I'm wrong. But I think usually what happens in these situations is that they're not actually uh, addressing the arguments that I'm raising, which sounds kind of very presumptuous on my part. And I understand how that, how that sounds. But if you look into what we're actually talking about, there's one one issue in particular that uh, I talk about quite a bit, which is to do with one of the videos, is the, uh, the, the, the gimbal video, we can, which we can get into later. But it's a very simple thing, which is uh, when the, the scene rotates, can, can something that rotates the scene make a glare rotate? Mm -hmm. uh, and the people have told me that obviously it, it, it can't, that, that can't happen because if you're rotating the entire scene, everything is going to rotate, which is true. But unfortunately, they were asked the wrong question. So we get this this situation where it's not really dueling experts here. It's it's kind of people almost talking across purposes. Like I put forward a hypothesis, and someone doesn't understand what it was, but they're not actually talking to me, so we can't we can't thrash it out. So I would love to talk to Raytheon. I would love to talk to actual engineers. Uh, I have heard people who told me that I uh, I was right in various things, but they can't talk about it because it's uh, it's a classified system. Mm -hmm. you know, the AtFlir system, you know, the, the video that we're looking at right now was taken with an AtFlir camera, uh, which is a very expensive military pod. Heating glare effect is simply to yeah. take uh, your, your camera phone uh, and, and just kind of touch the lens on the back. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's actually, it, this is actually the best footage that we have available from that camera. We can't actually find any other footage because it's, it's a classified system and the military does not release that footage. So we've got this, this opaque wall of secrecy beyond which I can't reach. Mm -hmm. We have some people who are a bit closer to that wall and they can kind of look over it. And we have people on the other side who can't actually talk about it at all. Uh, and so we've got this, this big problem of communication. How do I get, how do I resolve, you know, whether I'm right or wrong if no one can actually talk about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is this kind of deference to authority, which, by the way, does not have a place in the scientific method. Einstein was wrong no less than seven times, at least uh, by my reckoning. He was, of course, right many more times than that. And uh, I point out in my book that he deserved probably seven Nobel Prizes, according to most physicists. And why he didn't win that is a tale for another time. Uh, but, uh, but similarly, you know, we could make the same argument for astronomers who, as my friend Sarah Scholes has made in her book, they are already here. She was on my podcast last year about her book, which focuses on Tom DeLonge and and kind of the the um, uh, the features there. You know, astronomers are also experts at watching the skies, and we have advanced technology that's not classified. And in fact, yeah. most of the technology that it goes into military hardware has some pedigree, some heritage that traces its way to astronomical signals. For example, the cosmic microwave background that I study uh, was uh, detected by accident, serendipitously, by two radio astronomers. Astronomers, and 
and it's a through line directly to the cell phone that we're using many of our listeners are watching right now on uh, to our, the devices in our pockets to this very day. Uh, and the technology that went into the first CCD cameras, those are all for astronomical image sensing. Astronomers are watching the skies right now around the planet, any clear night of the day. And we use uh, all wavelength bands and we don't uh, have any less of an interest. In fact, Carl Sagan, one of the most eminent astronomers of all time, uh, Jill Tarter, Seth Shostak, who will be on the Into the Impossible podcast live tomorrow, Thursday. Mm-hmm. And you're welcome, all of you listening out there, to join in. All these folks have been on my podcast. We astronomers would like nothing better, Mick, than if this were true. If we could have access to advanced technology, if we could have access to new knowledge and new laws of physics, this, I mean, if you were suppressing this, Mick, I would be more mad than any of the comments that that come in negatively against you. So I think uh, to to argue that, you know, astronomers are suppressing this, I think that's that's sort of a laughable uh, point. Now, the government conspiracy against it, uh, you have to give them something, right? If they're saying, well, the government's not going to give you the FLIR because it's advanced technology, I think that's a little hollow. This image was taken, these images were taken in 2004. That probably means the Raytheon technology is over 30 years old, right? I mean, the FLIR system itself was mounted on a pod. It's not installed in the F6, uh, as I understand, F18. This variant, which is the Super Hornet, is the upgrade first commissioned in the 1980s. So this is not like some modern stealth fighter, right? This is a pod that's external to the original airframe. Am I right? Yeah, it fits underneath. You can take it on or off. Some some of the planes don't even have it on. Uh, ah. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's just a camera essentially. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about you know what can it do or what can, what can't it do, uh, there aren't that many really secret technological things that are hidden. Uh, and a lot of it was actually described in the patents, which uh, I read in, in great depth. And they described, uh, to some degree, the internal workings of the system and how it uses these gimbaled mirrors internally to steer uh, the line of sight and how it has this external gimbal and how they work together. Uh, so it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like we know nothing at all about it. But mm-hmm. it would be good to have confirmation. Again, part of the problem here is that the, what I'm describing is quite complicated. Uh, it was described by Joe Rogan as uh, performing gen- uh, mental gymnastics, which is a term that's kind of caught on for describing the, the, these theories. But, uh, you know, they are complicated and it is difficult to explain. And so people then tend to uh, pick their expert and they pick which person they want to to agree with. And of course, like if it's a choice between me and someone who you know claims to be a FLIR technician or someone who is a pilot who is disagreeing with me, they're going to pick you know the pilot and then mm-hmm. pick the, the the FLIR technician. Uh, and it could be simply that they prefer that explanation, but it's also because you know this this other person has has a bit more perceived authority than than me. <laughs> So mm-hmm. if we have explanations that are, are competing and we can't actually thrash them out in the public sphere, then people are going to go with opinions rather than actual facts. But mm-hmm. you know, if someone disagrees with me, they shouldn't just say, I disagree with you because I'm an expert. They should say, I disagree with you and here's why and here's the exact technical reason why. And then mm-hmm. we can discuss that and figure it out. One of the most troubling aspects as far as experts in doubting the pilots to me as, you know, I fly tiny little Cessnas, right? Uh, one of the things that, um, uh, that, that troubled me is a report that was on 60 Minutes over time. And the fact that 60 Minutes didn't have any, uh, as Arthur C. Clarke would say, equal and opposite experts, meaning someone like you or someone just to counter the narrative that it either is the co- conspiracy cover up 
we have right to FOIA, right to know, or the two pilots, uh, three pilots or, or more perhaps, or Lou, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his last name, I probably would mispronounce it. I'd, ha- I'd love to have him on the show as well. Uh, he's certainly you know a hero to many people, deservedly so. Uh, but anyway, there was nobody to point out you know that, uh, except in 60 Minutes Overtime, and I can put a link to that in the chat, you know, that when they came back for, for several days, the pilots were kind of mocked, they were teased, you know, and and I pointed out to my listeners on my channel uh, last night, I was chatting with them in, in the comment section on my channel, and I said, you know, you can make fun of me because I'm not a great pilot and I'm not going to like criticize that or Mick, you know, and I, you can say like, you have no right Keating or Mick, you have no right to criticize this trained, highly skilled pilot, Fravor, Dietrich. These are heroes. These are top guns, literally. Um, but these are other pilots now criticizing them, teasing them, um, making fun of them. Like I would never tease, you never tease a pilot about an accident, about an incident. This could have led to like tragic co- consequences. Right? So I'm wondering, I can't criticize them. I can't, you know, because I'm not an expert, but these are other fighter pilots, right? Now, people are saying, well, pilots will be pilots, they'll tease each other. But come on, at some point, you you have to start to say, well, like, you know, at what point do we trust the eyewitness testimony? And what point, you know, do we we have to rely on sensor data? Now, there are questions in the chat room. People are asking, well, what about the radar data? Is that not reliable? That's not eyewitness data. That's cold, hard, time series evidence. Mick, what do you say about that? Uh, the radar data is eyewitness data because we don't actually have access to it and we don't even know anybody who has access to it now. We, perhaps Lou Elizondo is claiming that he has seen something. But if, you, uh, if we talk about, say, the Nimitz incident, which is David Fravor's incident, we have recollections about what the radar looked like, you know, what showed up on the scope and what uh, showed up when they did replays uh, of it. But we don't actually have the data. Uh, so, you know, really, is that is that recollection of uh, a radar reading any different from an eyewitness seeing something in the sky? You know, it's additional information, but it's just an additional eyewitness uh, s- uh, statement. We don't actually have the corroborating data. We, you know, if we have the if we have the video and we had like you know a video of the radar screen showing the same thing at the same time, that would be wonderful. That would be really, really good if it showed something amazing. You know, if it just showed, you know, dots in the distance, that wouldn't be that amazing. But, you know, we don't actually have the data, but people talk about that all the time. We have eyewitness accounts of seeing things in the sky. We have eyewitness accounts of radar data. And we have this, this one kind of fuzzy video uh, of something which doesn't actually, doesn't actually happen at the same time as either the eyewitness accounts or uh, the, the eyewitness accounts of the radar data. Mm-hmm. So um, now the time series data is that not available to you know FOIA requests or something? Like, I mean, I can imagine that you know after 17 years <laughs> might not be uh, super yeah. threatening. Uh, but you know, have, is that something that you've pursued as as well, Mick, to try to gain access to? I haven't, but I know other people have. People have been trying to get this this information out, uh, you know, for for years. Uh, this this information, you know, if it was there, yeah, you know, it's just it's just the type of thing that is um, classified or not cleared for release by default. And there's just no there's no reason for the military to release it. And I, I don't know if that would even be uh, foiable because it's something that's uh, you know essentially an, an active operation, even if it's a training operation. Uh, I don't know if that would be something that they would release. I guess they have released deck logs uh, of some incidents, but they also re- retract uh, parts of those, redact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, yeah, it would be great if we could have that. And if anybody out there has got any idea how to get it, then, yeah, let's get it. But we do mm-hmm. not have radar data now. 
Uh, let's see. There's a question. My Cyrillic is not that great, but I think it's Anton. Uh, Spasiba Anton uh, is asking a question. Why not make a collaborative research effort with between Mick and some former TTSA members? Have you thought about doing that, reaching out to the intelligence community? Well, yeah, TTSA uh, isn't the intelligence community, though. That's the, the To the Stars Academy. Oh, uh, To the Stars. Sorry. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, I know, thought it was uh, a Transportation are... Safety Administration. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be the TSA. <laughs> uh, yeah, the... The, I, yeah, I would, I'd be happy to collaborate with anybody if they've got like some ideas or information that they want to share or they want to work over. But you know, I've, I've talked to someone. I've talked to Lou Elizondo. I, I interviewed him. Uh, I tried to get Chris Mellon uh, to, to, you know, to talk, and I've, I've emailed a few of the other people, and I'd be happy to talk to any of them. But uh, I don't think they like me, and I think part of that is because uh, I'm a destroyer of, destroyer of dreams when it comes to UFO videos. I, I, I take these videos and I give a, a mundane explanation of it, and this isn't my intent. I don't go in there thinking like, oh, well, I'm going to destroy somebody's dreams today. I go there and look at these videos and say, what is this thing? You know, and try to figure out what it is, mm -hmm. and it, perhaps because I'm a bit more obsessive and have a little bit more time on my hands than, than other people have, I often kind of you know, arrive at an answer, and often with the help of other people. A lot of people contribute to these investigations, mm -hmm. and you know, it turns out a lot of these videos are very mundane explanations when TTSA, uh, people like Elizondo and Mellon, have been claiming in the past that they show extraordinary things. Uh, which would be ind indicative of some kind of amazing technology or even aliens. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to the eyewitness accounts, you know, which I think uh, I think it is believed that th those are some of the more convincing accounts, right? Because you're basically saying the radar data shouldn't should count as eyewitness data, right? You're saying the operators are testifying. We don't have the raw data. We don't have the time series data, as you might expect. Correct. Yeah, we don't. We don't have data that we can actually analyze and do some kind of reconstruction. We have people's recollections of it, which is certainly more than just eyewitness, uh, you know, eyeballs on the thing. We we have uh, actual people talking about the radar. For example, when Fravor went out to see an object, he was sent to a location because there was a radar. Uh, return at that location, and it was one of these. Uh, you know, in the Nimitz encounter, they had these groups of five radar returns, which were slowly drifting down from the north to the south, which they initially thought might be some kind of uh, glitch in the system. They reset the system, and then it you know, stayed. And they they thought that might be balloons or something. They, they couldn't figure it out, and eventually they sent a jet out. You know, this mm -hmm. is the, this is the story, the recollection that people give. And then Fravor went to the location, and then at approximately that location he saw something down by the water and that turned out to be the Tic Tac and uh, Alex Dietrich was, was there with him and she saw uh, something you know, along the same lines. Now the altitude and so forth, I mean, I'd love to have on those individuals and I'm hoping and working to get to, to be with them, but I'm trying to work out just the geometry of it. You've done yeoman's work yeah. on uh, you know reproducing the glare and lens flare and ghosting. The bokeh, we'll get into that in just a bit. Um, and uh, but looking at it in, in terms of, you know, from a pilot's perspective, how how would one actually approach this literally, you know, flying a high performance jet low over the ocean uh, tracking, you know, during a daytime encounter uh, for an object which was reported the size of, a, of, uh, of an F-18, um, you know, with no scale, nothing to compare to on a featureless ocean surface, um, you know, where you're tr flying a supersonic 
jet uh, capable of extremely high speeds at what's called high angle of attack. So the only way to fly a very fast jet very slow, as would be needed, would be to make it dirty, which is to have landing gear and flaps, spoilers, leading edge devices, et cetera, deployed, and then fly it at high angle of attack or high alpha, which puts the cockpit at a high um, uh, high pitch with respect to the ocean. So that's not really compatible. And I'm wondering, you know, people have actually simulated, you know, what would the encounter look like just from a just from an aviation perspective? What is the geometry involved? You know, what did it look like from the cockpit? Because it wasn't like, you know, it's, imagine driving down the freeway and you're looking for yeah. something the size of a car or, or two cars uh, and you're going the stall speed of an F-18 in that configuration, which is its landing configuration, still about 100 knots or so. Um, and so he'd have to be going faster than that or he would stall and he wouldn't be here, God forbid. Um, so you're going 200, maybe 200 knots, uh, 230 miles an hour uh, to stay safe. Uh, and then you're still at a pitch up a- angle if you're not deploying your, your all your um, drag devices. So has anyone looked at what is the geometry involved and what would it look like in the cockpit? The cockpit is not like a you know, glass bubble. He's got a lot of stuff in his face. He's got a heads up display. Yeah. Has anyone looked at that? Well, I think, you know, the cockpit kind of is, the top half of it is kind of a glass bubble, and the, the pilot does actually sit relatively high because they do need to have very good visibility in the airspace around them, so it's not like they can't see out of the side. And the angle of attack perhaps isn't so much of an issue uh, at the front because when Fravor says he saw it at first, he says he looked out of the side window and saw it. Uh, so he, he would have had a reasonable view of the ocean. And I think even if you're going at 200 to 300 knots, uh, we're looking down at the ocean at something that is, you know, is 20,000 feet below and you know, a few uh, few thousand feet to the side. So say it's about you know, four or five miles away visually. So even if you're going fairly fast you know, in your field of view, the, the, the rate of change of, uh, of the angle of the, the object isn't going to be that much. So you would be able to, to keep an eyeball on it if you could see it in the first place. And they didn't actually see the object itself first, the, the, the tic-tac object. They saw what they describe as being a excuse me, a disturbance in the water. So they looked down and they saw what looked like either waves breaking over something or some kind of boiling in the water uh, type disturbance, like a submarine surfacing or, or whales feeding or something like that. Uh, and then they saw this, this tic-tac object uh, above this disturbance in the water. So you could imagine that you know, this, this larger disturbance would catch their eye. And then they saw this, this smaller tic-tac. So I think uh, you know, it's, it's you know, plausible that they, they saw something and certainly seeing something in the water. But then where it gets complicated is, uh, like you say, they're looking at something where you have no context uh, as to how big it is. You know, it's, a, it's a tic-tac. I've got this. This is like an iPhone case I'm holding up here, uh, tic-tac shaped. And uh, you, know, you know how big it is because you know how big my hand is. But if this was just you know hovering in space and you know it was there was blue sky behind it and you didn't know how far away it was, if this was like say you know back on my shelf over here, it would actually be a lot bigger uh, than, than than what you see here. It would be like you know four times as big. But because you know where it is, uh, you excuse me, got to uh, didn't didn't mute my Skype there uh, <laughs> because because you know what the context is, you can figure out how big it is. But if you lack that context. You cannot actually you cannot actually find out uh, uh, how how big it is, and if you don't know how big something is, you don't know how far away it is, and vice versa. If you don't know how far away it is, you don't know how big it is. Now, Fravor says that he looked at this thing and he knew it was forty feet long, and he was asked by Lex Fridman, like, "How did you know this?" And his answer was, um, 15 years as experience as a pilot, as a Navy pilot, Top Gun pilot." Right. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of fair enough. But 
how actually do you know? How do you know? Is, is there some kind of technique that you use? Mm -hmm. Is Do you reference something else? Or you just, you look at this thing, you have no idea what it is, no idea what uh, how, how big it is, but you instantly know how big it is by, by magic is somehow essentially. You know, and the Fravor then goes on to talk about, uh, in this same interview with Lex Fridman, about how you, you can't actually trust your eyes. Fridman mm -hmm. asked him, "How often you know, do you, you know, do you trust your eyes? And you know, how often do you make mistakes?" And 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 uh, uh, and Fravor was saying, "You know, all the time." Yeah, he says you're actually trained not to trust our eyes That's because right. your eyes fool you in aviation. Mm -hmm. He was talking about other stuff uh, and saying like, you know, we go down. When he went down, he says he didn't go all the way down to the surface of the ocean because you you always stop before you get too close to the ocean because people lose spatial awareness as to how high they are and they fly into the ocean. He said that happens all the time. Right. So if he knows about all these visual illusions that can happen, how does he know something like that didn't actually happen to him? Yeah, although they have radar altimeters in the F-18, and there are many ways to do it. But yes, you're right. As a pilot, the first well, lesson sure, yeah. you get is trust your instruments. That's why we yeah, have exactly. instruments. Exactly. That's and why you use the altimeter rather than looking to see where the ocean is when you're descending towards the ocean. When you try to land at an airport, yeah, you know, you you're using you're generally using things uh, like like the, the the landing aids that are on the side yeah. of the airport. On the so other hand, you know, up. I am I am torn. Right, you would like to have there not be a stigma, you know, if there are some in let's say it's it's not you know exotic phenomena. Let's say it is you know Chinese drones or you know let's say those you know Portuguese. I, I don't know why we always have to you know stigmatize that there's you know these nefarious enemies trying to let's say it's those damn Portuguese people again. They're trying to get back you know the new world and they've got sophisticated anti-aircraft you know anyway. Uh, and so they're harassing. And so you wouldn't want to make it so that, you know, the next time an F-35 pilot is out there that she's not going to report it. Right. So you don't want to stigmatize oh, yeah. it too much. No, right? I, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm all for that. I'm all for reporting these incidents because I think uh, the more that they can be reported, the more we can clear up what's actually going on. Because I, th I think there are very real issues here. Mm -hmm. uh, if Fravor, you know, saw something. And mm -hmm. it wasn't identified. That needs to be figured out. They should have followed it up. They should have tried to figure out what was going on, and maybe they did. So, uh, you know, either there was a failure there in, in doing that, or they already knew what it was. And I think yeah, it's probably the former. You know, they probably just didn't take him seriously, and they didn't follow up with, with, uh, with investigating it. So I think, you know, if pilots are seeing things that are unidentified, that is an issue. Uh, sometimes that is going to be the pilots themselves making mistakes. Sometimes it might be issues with equipment, and sometimes it might actually be be real things. And it could be just you know different ways of looking at things that we haven't really like thought about before. Like you know, perhaps sometimes uh, we get certain atmospheric effects which do you know make make something appear like a flying saucer off in the distance. So yeah, we should definitely look into these things. Mm -hmm. So just a reminder, uh, take a little pause. We're speaking with Mick West, uh, who's got a wonderful YouTube channel, which you may find uh, wherever YouTube's videos are sold and bought. Uh, I am Brian Keating, the proprietor of the Into the Impossible podcast. And you can find me, Dr. Brian Keating, on YouTube and on Twitter, and Mick West at Mick West on Twitter and on YouTube as well. So Array Gray is asking, what do you think of the most foundational UFO cases? Aerial school sighting, Phoenix, mm. Le West Hall uh, school sighting, Forest, Rendall sighting, uh, Rendlesham sighting. How much weight do you give to any of these sightings? Well, you know, a lot of these things are... Um eyewitness-only accounts. The aerial school sighting was a, a lot of school children who saw something. 
and the uh, the, the Rendlesham Forest sighting, like I think, has some maybe very limited imagery. But again, it was mostly eyewitness accounts, and uh, a lot of these these sightings are very very old. And I personally, you know, while you know, I, I don't don't want to just dismiss them out of hand. I, I'm not particularly interested in these old sightings because the evidence that's available for analysis isn't very good. Uh, the aerial school one, for example, the evidence consists of uh, a bunch of children telling the story of what they, they th thought they saw and some pictures that the uh, the children drew and there's no there's no physical evidence there's no there's no uh, adult witnesses and there's no you know videos or photos so that one's a very difficult one to get any any handle on and you'd have to talk to like child psychiatrists and memory experts as to you know the validity of their eyewitness accounts but you know personally I don't I don't think it's particularly compelling uh, and I I just you know, I'm not actually really that much of a UFO guy when it comes down to it. Uh, I only really got into it four years ago. I, I'm not deeply seeped in the, the history of UFOs, uh, although I've been reading a lot recently because it's so fascinating. But uh, w what I'm really into is studying videos. And so that naturally means that I, I look at the newer cases because the newer cases are the ones that have videos. So some other questions are coming in about uh, about the famous Boca Green Pyramid, which mm. I thought you did a masterful kind of analysis with um, actually making use of free astronomical toolkits like Stellarium and loading positions. The only thing I thought was missing was just the analysis of an arrival, what's called an arrival corridor where aircraft arrive on predefined uh, set flight paths. And the fact that many of these aircraft um, that fly in what's called controlled airspace, which the Tic Tac encounter, by the way, was not within, if it was conducted at the surface, mm. is in what's called a so-called warning area, which anybody who has a pilot's license can operate in. They do so at great risk. Um, and that uh, that risk is is to you know potential life and limb that you may be intercepted, you may be uh, shot, you may be intercepted not illegally, but you may be intercepted as a, sort of a cat playing with a mouse, and that would be uh, yeah. that that would be for practice for these naval aviators. Uh, but you're legally allowed to operate in this warning area, uh, and uh, but you may be shot with a missile <laughs> by accident uh, because they can't guarantee your safety. But above eighteen thousand feet, if this object really did ascend to sixty thousand feet uh for example but other things like the book uh, if you want to explain that so, yeah the book is interesting because it's new but yeah real quick i i actually used to uh fly in, in that area myself i didn't really oh. fly over the ocean very much i would go out and look at the dolphins occasionally but uh yeah around uh, 2003 2004 yeah, coincidentally the exact same time of the nimbus encounter i was taking flying lessons out of santa monica so oh, I'm kind of familiar with the the layout of the airspace there, and you know you can fly out of Santa Monica, you've got the Class B beneath you, so you never really get down to the warning area. But uh, yeah, it's very busy airspace, it is. Uh, which is one of the things about it, because obviously you've got not only LAX, but you have uh, you have Long Beach uh, John Wayne Airport, and then you have San Diego, and then a few other airports as well. And you sometimes get people flying from Hawaii to Denver flying overhead as well. And then mm -hmm. you get people flying overhead from, from the north to San Diego. Very, very busy airspace. So there's lots of things to see uh, in the sky. Yes. And you know, that kind of brings us to the, the Boca video, yeah. the, the triangle video. Like right at the start of that video, you actually see a bunch of stars and the planet Jupiter. And somebody else noticed this before I did. And they pointed out that this was you know, this actual constellation and that the, 
that uh, Jupiter was there on that particular day, like June the 15th, 2019. And so we knew exactly where the camera was looking. And then we were able to trace the camera through the sky and see where it ended up. Mm-hmm. And where it ended up, there was two other stars uh, right at the end of the of the, uh, the, the the video. And you see the flashing triangle pass by these two other stars. And these two other stars also take on the shape of triangles. And this was kind of originally presented when the video came out as these are two other crafts that are not flashing and are just hovering there. But you can see by doing this trace through it that they're actually these these two stars. I don't think they're actually labeled in this version of the video, but you know you can actually you'll, you'll see it pass by one of them in a second. Uh, and you know we, we know exactly what what the stars are. We know uh, what mm-hmm. we're looking at, and we know what angle we're looking at because we know what time of day it is roughly. Uh, so we can get a good idea of uh, you know what we're actually looking at in terms of uh, altitude and angular speed and whatnot. But you know, stepping back a bit, besides knowing where it is in the sky and the fact that the triangle shape of the, the object is kind of an, an optical artifact, which is obvious from the stars being made into triangles by the camera, uh, we also see that it's flashing, and it's flashing in a very similar way yep. to uh, the, the flashing of a commercial plane, like a Boeing 737. Mm-hmm. The, there's, they don't have strict ways that they have to flash they just have limits between which you know, they have to flash between something like 30 and 70 times per second or something like that they have a limit mm-hmm. and different manufacturers have different types of lights there's led lights and there's the xenon lights uh but yeah basically the bottom line is uh the flashing pattern looks like a plane the triangular shape of this object comes uh from an artifact of the camera it has a, a triangular aperture like the the aperture of uh, of the lens is, is triangular Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some some lenses have more circular apertures, like which this is octagonal one here. This one's a triangular one. So when you take pictures of small lights that are out of focus, they will appear as triangles, uh, and that's that's what we're seeing here. So all these things kind of line up, and then we know the rough location of the plane, uh, the, of the boat that where where the video is taken. It's the USS Russell, and we have the deck logs from those two days, and we have the location. Uh, in, in latitude and longitude of that, and so you can stick it on a map, and we can go back into the 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 flight to flight trapping apps like PlaneFinder, PlaneFinder.net. You can replay back to that day, and you can see exactly which planes were flying overhead, and a whole bunch of planes on that particular day. It varies based on the wind and and other factors, but on that day there were a whole bunch of planes basically flying directly overhead that area. So everything lines up. You've got a triangular-shaped flashing light that's uh, moving, it's moving at plane speed. We can do that. We can do the whole uh, translate the angular velocity to to linear velocity, and it works out to be right if they, if it's at the same altitude as the planes. Uh, we we know there were planes in that region at the time, and we know that this is is simply a a small light that has been turned into a triangular shape, which is what a a plane would look like. And beyond that. We have a whole bunch of people who have this type of, of, of night vision camera with a triangular aperture. This is just a lens, not a night vision camera. But they have these night vision cameras with triangular apertures. They've gone out. They've taken pictures of the night sky with stars and planes, and it looks exactly the same as this video. Mm. So I, I really don't feel like there's very much room for alternative explanations here. And yet people won't let it go. <laughs> So uh, I want to switch topics to your book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. I'm going to talk about that for a little bit. What is that about? What impelled you to write it? 
uh, what is the guide to helping friends, family, and loved ones? Why do you want them to escape? Doesn't it sort of, uh, you know, kind of depend on what they believe? And uh, why, sure. why, 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 uh, why, did, why did you write this book? Well, uh, it's really about helping people who have been trapped in some kind of um, conspiracy theory rabbit hole. They've come to believe things which are, are not true. Like, uh, say, an extreme example, someone believes that the Earth is flat, and they're going around saying that the Earth is flat. Everyone makes fun of them because of this. They become socially isolated because uh, people think that they are idiots. They, they try to persuade other people that the Earth is flat. They don't trust anything that science says, so they dis start distrusting every single thing that's, that's out there in science. And so uh, I think it's a worthwhile thing trying to help them get out of that belief. Now, that's an extreme belief. There are lots of other uh, conspiracy theory beliefs that are out there that are, are less extreme. But, for example, some people believe that the World Trade Center was destroyed by the U.S. government using pre-planted explosives. You know, this is something that people actually believe. So it's conspiracy theory that people believe. And if you start believing that, again, you start uh having all these very mm, antisocial, for want of a better word. But if, if, if you start, you know, having this deep-seated distrust of the government, you can kind of go south in a, in a, very, in a very short space of time. If you, if you think back to a long time ago, there was the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which I think was in the 1990s, uh, maybe the early 2000s, no, the 1990s. Yeah, but that, that was done by Timothy McVeigh, and he was a believer in conspiracy theories. He mm -hmm. thought that the U.S. government was in league with the United Nations and was going to enslave everybody. And uh, he was sending a, a message to, to the powers that be that you know, he wasn't going to take it. So these conspiracy theories have consequences, both for the individual and for society as a whole. And so something I've, I've actually been interested in in general is just how do you talk to people who believe in conspiracy theories? And you know, kind of what I've learned over the years is that the, the key thing to do is first of all keep talking you know, maintain an effective communication uh, with people and uh, don't don't get into a position where you're arguing with them straight away because until you you reach some kind of mutual understanding you're not going to get anywhere so the first thing you've got to do is like keep talking the second thing you've got to do is try to figure out figure them out try to understand them and or and on the flip side try to explain to them where you are coming from but always do it in this context of keeping the conversation going. And then when you kind of establish that and you've got some kind of common ground, you can then move on to kind of the, the second step of the process, which is supplying them with useful information, which is you know, if they, they say something which is wrong, you can at this point, now you've established effective communication, you can respectfully introduce other uh, opinions and facts and then talk about them. You know, mm -hmm. They're not necessarily going to agree with it, but you can talk about it. And then the third step here in my three-step program is to give it time because mm -hmm. these things take a lot more time than you would initially think. You think you could just go in there, explain to someone why they're wrong, and they'll be like, oh, yeah. But no, it doesn't work like that. You explain <laughs> to them why they're wrong, and they say, you're a government shill, and they stop talking to you. So it's a kid gloves process that takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I uh, want to remind folks, we're talking with Mick West, who's got his own uh, podcast, he's got his own book, and he's got his own YouTube channel, a uh, competitor to mine. Uh, but I do hope that you will tune in to both, subscribe to both, even though it's a zero-sum game, Mick. Hopefully, we'll find some fertile cross-pollination. I want to ask a question sure. that is being asked by a listener um, who has a name that I was going to choose for my firstborn son. His name is Boiled Pizza, which is making me hungry. Mm. 
uh, to be honest. But he asked a good question, which I'll rephrase a little bit. Uh, Mick, I want to ask you, which uh, debate opponent on the other side of the UFO aisle would you most fear or, or do you most uh, <laughs> do you feel is most kind of intimidating to your uh, uh, against your arguments? Um, well, I don't know. I, 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 I talked recently with, oh gosh, I forget his name now. Um, but the guy from the, the SCU, I, I must apologize to him, but, uh, uh, Robert, I think something, but you know, he was a guy who had been kind of asking me for a long time to have a debate with him because, you know, he, he felt like he could, uh, obliterate me. And uh, we had, you know, a reasonable chat and we, we thrashed out a few things and we had some disagreements and some agreements. I don't like to debate people i like to have discussions with them yeah mm -hmm. I, I think there's no point trying to you know try try to be like you know, who has the best argument here we're not lawyers in a courtroom trying to present a case trying to get someone off you know lawyers have to just look at one side i don't want to look at just one side i want to figure out what's going on i'm, I'm not a lawyer i'm an investigator i'm someone who's trying to figure out what actually happened in these cases uh, so if anybody wants to talk to me that's fine. I mean, if they want they want to argue with me, that's fine too. Like, I, I don't I don't mind that. You know, if they want to try to point out where I'm wrong, that's great. Because if people are pointing out where I'm wrong, we can have a discussion about that, and we can say, you know, am I actually wrong? You know, maybe maybe not. Or maybe I am. And if I am, I'll revise my position and move on. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, so we have a couple more questions from the audience, and I will also conclude with some questions of my own. So cooperating with the uh, To The Stars Academy, which you corrected me about, of course, uh, is not out of the question. You would love to have them uh, uh, collaborate with you, but so far they have not uh, accepted. What do you make of Harry Reid and and uh, you know getting involved mm. in this? Uh, kind of makes strange bedfellows with Marco Rubio. Is that, uh, did that pique your interest? Yeah, well, I mean, Harry Reid has been a uh, UFO enthusiast for a long time. He got into UFOs back in 1996 when he, I think, first went to a UFO convention with his, with his friend George Knapp, who's a, a local Las Vegas journalist. And he he has a friend, uh, Rob Bigelow, who's the guy behind the, mm -hmm. the ATIP program. He got the original ATIP uh, uh, contract. So, you know, he's he's been a UFO enthusiast for a long time. Uh, I don't know about strange bedfellows with with Rubio. It's it's kind of in a way a kind of an apolitical issue. Um, so you know if, if Republicans want to get interested in it, then I, I don't think they're going to be particularly you know upset that they're they're working with Democrats on it. Uh, you you have Rubio and you have Mark Warner, who is the actual chief of the Intelligence Committee now that that uh, Rubio was when Trump was president. And, you know, they're, they're basically saying the same thing, that there are things that the military can't always identify and uh, that we should look into this because, like I said earlier, it's an issue. So, yeah, I don't really see any kind of political uh, problem there. Mm -hmm. And what do you say to those that criticize you because you're a video game designer, video game? I mean, uh, uh, for example, I heard Fravor comment on you. Uh, well, you know, the, the Tic Tac analysis that you did you know, the plane is, is, you have the gimbal, but the plane is not, is not banking. It's just sort of pivoting and aircraft yeah. don't really do that, which is true. And you know that as a pilot as well. So what, what do you say to that? Well, uh, video game programming is actually fairly complicated. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff going on in there. Uh, so the, the, and the mathematics that we're talking about in terms of things like gimbal rotation and, uh, the axis of rotation and, and three dimensional transforms, 
uh, are just the exact same types of things that I do in video game programming. So I, I may not know the nuts and bolts of you know what button to press in the cockpit, but I understand what happens when a, when a mirror rotates, or I understand what happens when when a camera rotates, and I understand what gimbal lock is, uh, and so I can read I can read the patterns and I can see what's going on inside inside these cameras. Now, Frame is great at um, operating the equipment, but that doesn't mean he necessarily knows every nuance of what might happen. Uh, to it in various unusual situations, like with with the gimbal, uh, I don't think he really had a, a good rebuttal of uh, the fact that there is this gimbal roll. In fact, he explicitly said that there there wasn't a gimbal roll transition when you go past zero degrees. And yet, in Underwood's video, which he's very familiar with, you can actually see the gimbal roll happen. You see the entire sky rotate much more dramatically, in fact, than in the gimbal video. So he's missing something that's right there in front of his face. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, if I was to be able to sit down with him and respectfully go through uh, it with him, I'm sure he could show me things, but I think I could probably show him a few things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, from a physics perspective, which is the way I hope to engage, you know, I can't engage uh, other than the tools that I have, which are, you know, from the perspective of an astrophysicist, he's very learned in general relativity, quantum mechanics, uh, thermodynamics, et cetera, you know, these objects are, you know, potentially traversing, you know, if they're, uh, you know, truly described by interstellar phenomena, they would have to traverse vast distances, be controlled remotely, uh, be autonomous, uh, because, you know, uh, they'd have to have some you know, purpose in mind. And then they're operating in a very narrow, you know, region of the Earth's mesosphere, um, in very short durations, but then they happen to be in a very, very narrow uh, region of one country's warning areas, um, yeah. you know, that's defined by an obscure administration agency of the federal government. Um, and, and they seem to show up preferentially in one country. Um, and they don't show up, you know, when Venus is below the horizon as often. They don't show up uh, outside of certain flight paths. Um, and what do you make of also this kind of uh, resurgence of of interest. Of course, you know, David Kaiser is professor of science, technology, as well as physics at MIT, uh, wrote a book recently, Quantum um, Legacies, about the, how the atom and splitting the atom and the quantum revolution uh, led to many similar related phenomena, both the threat of nuclear holocaust, but also the resurgence or the surge of interest in radar, in UFOs, etc. And now we kind of see a new uh, twin paradox coming about where we have a resurgence or a surge in interest in interplanetary uh, uh, travel, a courtesy of SpaceX, perhaps. We have exploration going back to the moon, not the space age, space race originally. We have uh, hopes for fusion reactors on Earth. We have hopes for artificial intelligence, machine learning. It's sort of like paralleling the post-war detente, but Cold War Instead of Russia, we may have China, as we've said. Um, do you make of it that, you know, kind of this arises in a milieu of vast technological kind of um, what they call future shock? Is that to be expected in, in such a milieu? I think so. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that's what's happening here. I'm not sure what's with the current UFO flap. It's actually really any different to the, the UFO flaps of the 1940s and 1950s. Now, back in the, the 40s and 50s, we, we had a very mm, kind of interesting technological uh, backdrop, which was the, the threat of nuclear weapons and the, the promise of nuclear power. 
so we we had this kind of new technology, and a lot of people theorized at the time that uh, flying saucers were actually Russian nuclear-powered planes, and that somehow the, the Russians had done this technological leap, which is something people theorize now, that uh, what we're seeing is an adversary who has developed some kind of warp drive. Uh, so it's very, it seems very, very similar, but I, I don't think there's this kind of similar backdrop uh, in, in terms of uh, an advance in technology. I mean, sure, there's the, there's the space, uh, SpaceX aspect of it, but, and that's contributed, but I think more SpaceX has contributed because of the, the SpaceX satellites and the, the, the constellation trains of satellites are still being mistaken for UFOs. But my, my feeling isn't really that there's this, this big, you know, big shift in technology, which is being represented by a shift in, in perceptions of, of UFOs. I think what we're seeing now is really essentially uh, uh, the, the result of a fairly good PR program by the, the groups of people who are interested in, in UFO disclosure. I mean, going back to Harry Reid and uh, Rob Bigelow and you know, Tom DeLong and, and Lou Elizondo, people like that, they're doing a good job of getting it out there in the media. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Wilson is saying, uh, the names of the videos go fast, gimbal, are clear indications that the Department of Defense realize what they are, and they are trolling people. What do you make of that? Uh, it could be that the the names of the videos represent what's actually in them in terms of uh, the analysis of them. Like the GoFast video, I mean, you could think of that both ways because GoFast uh, looks like it's going fast. So if they were really trolling people, they would call it Go Slow because it's actually going slow, and that would be the the real explanation. The gimbal video, I think, is is perhaps the more telling file name, and these are actually the file names that were were released by the DoD. Uh, uh, because the the rotation of the gimbal craft appears to be a gimbal lock, a gimbal lock artifact. The camera traverses zero degrees, it has to rotate as it passes some time while it passes zero degrees, and that causes uh, the horizon to rotate relative to the, the camera, which means that the glares are now at an angle relative to the horizon, and then the, the derotation mechanism has to rotate the horizon back, which means that the glare is now rotated in the scene relative to where it was before. So yeah, that it could well be that this, this file name, Gimbal, represents the actual explanation of what is going on in the video. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a question from Philip Shane, who is uh, a good friend and host of the What the If uh, podcast. And let me see if I can call up his, um, his this question. So Philip is asking, would NOAA be a proper uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration? Would they be a proper agency to investigate um, UAPs? And I think that UAPs, he's saying, should be called unidentified atmospheric phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's certainly a possibility. And you know, a lot of the times when people point to things in the sky, they are actually pointing at atmospheric phenomena. They're pointing at things like clouds or things like uh, uh, inversion layers causing some kind of uh, mirage, like a, like a Fata Morgana type mirage or a superior mirage where uh, something that's on the horizon appears like it's floating way up above it. Uh, so I don't think, obviously, that it's, uh, every single UFO is some kind of atmospheric phenomena. But uh, certainly people who are experts in that, that type of thing at NOAA could be involved in the discussion. And, and NASA has a lot of atmospheric scientists as well. So, yeah, I think uh, a, UAP, a UAP task force of any, any, any quality would have an atmospheric scientist on board. Mm -hmm. 
And the last uh, sort of question that um, someone's asking, if you would like a Tic Tac, I think that's not called for. I think that's way out of order. Nobody wants a Tic Tac right now. This podcast is sponsored by by Bubblicious, of course. Um, I want to thank- I am a big fan of Tic Tacs, actually. I have my nice. empty box that nice. I just finished nice. earlier. The gum of choice. You need a need a new supply. So thank you for those super chats. I'll make sure Mick gets a tick and attack. I'm sorry, I said TikTok later. That earlier that must have been. I was talking too much about Chinese. That's why I'm being so nice and saying the Portuguese are responsible for all of this. Um, so I also want to talk just the last points about kind of the scientific method, scientific results. I think there is sort of a wish fulfillment in some sense that, um, as I said earlier, no astronomer worth his or her salt would turn down you know the opportunity to study mm-hmm. these phenomena uh first of all be instantaneous tenure i have a colleague here professor shelly wright she studies optical seti she's looking for burst of light not far from mm-hmm. where you are at the lick observatory looking for blast of light from alien civilizations uh this is legitimate scientific study uh it has been studied for 60 years plus and tomorrow when seth shostak comes on the podcast i'm going to ask him uh when this was conceived in the 1960s frank drake and others uh uh, philip morrison and others uh they thought it would be maybe a quick search and and it was kind of spare time on telescopes radio telescopes it's now lasted you know in a seventh decade when do you stop searching? Um, because there is a phenomenon, look elsewhere. You know, If you look long enough, you will start to see three sigma mm-hmm. standard deviation type effects. Um, but you know, is that justifiable? Is that self-justifiable? Is there a sunk cost hypothesis? I know this isn't your field, but you know, when do you stop looking or when do you double down? What do you think about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Totally distinct from what you and I have been talking about. Yeah, well, I think uh, that there's, there's two two searches really there's the search out there and then there's the search here and you know the ufo stuff is obviously the search here but the external search i think is something that you know where i would never stop looking for that i don't i don't think you're ever going to exhaust the 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 data sets that are out there or you're not going to exhaust different ways of looking for things like different ways of looking for signatures in exoplanet uh, uh atmospheres and the uh, de- uh variants in uh in uh, solar radiation from from other stars with things like Dyson spheres and whatnot, uh, various Dyson structures. So there's always going to be things to look for. Uh, I think, you know, sure, like you might get some kind of false positive eventually, but that doesn't mean that you you don't stop looking. It just means that's just another data point because it's not going to prove it to people because you know people will do the do the math and you know figure out that that doesn't actually uh, you know, prove that something exists out there and you you follow up with the experiment you'd look in the same bit of the sky and you know see what else is out there so uh i i'm a big science fiction fan like i said big arthur c clark uh fan one of my favorite books when i was younger was rendezvous with rama and i just love the idea of uh of aliens and i think we should keep looking (laughs) so i want to build on a question by uh tim as well um but i want to ask you know you're a game designer uh, let's fast forward, you know, 20 millennia. Let's let's apply Moore's law. You know, what do video games look like? What does uh, what does you know computational technology look like? What does AR look like? Um, what if there are you know advances uh, p- keeping a pace? First of all, is it possible? Can yeah. we keep progressing according to Moore's law? Just thinking about video games. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if you think about I mean, video games, are essentially simulations of reality, and uh, you know what we're, we're talking about here is is getting more and more high fidelity simulations that more closely uh, resemble 
the real world. And uh, yeah, Moore's law does does have certain physical limits. You you can't keep making transistors smaller and smaller because you know atoms uh, are not divisible, uh, divisible in terms of you know silicon. But uh, yeah, you can have massively parallel computation, and you can extend that out almost indefinitely. Uh, all it requires is, is space, material, and energy. Uh, so we could build, theoretically in the future, very, very large computers that could use, like like I was mentioned, the Dyson sphere, which is a sphere that encompasses a star to use all of the energy that the star is putting out. You could make a, um, a supercomputer, which was the size of a Dyson sphere, which would be incredibly, incredibly large. And you could do a very impressive video game with a computer that size. I don't know who would be playing it, but essentially what you're talking about there is a simulation that is indistinguishable from reality. And you know, of course, that leads you to the simulation hypothesis. Are we living in a simulation now? Uh, but yeah, I think yeah, perhaps like you know, going along those lines, you think could aliens have developed some kind of uh, supercomputer like that? And if they have, like probably it, that supercomputer is going to be vastly more intelligent than those aliens themselves were. If you get enough computing power and you structure the thing right, you're going to get uh, hyper-intelligence, which is vastly more powerful than, than, uh, uh, than humans, uh, which makes the case that I think if aliens do arrive, they will probably arrive in the form of super-intelligent robots rather than aliens themselves. Mm-hmm. And thinking about uh, you know kind of the 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 end game of, of where this goes, do you think it's more likely than not that the net result of this uh, release purportedly coming very soon, perhaps in the next day or two, uh, would be would be almost amounting to just a confirmation of what's been already talked about? In other words, that the Pentagon could essentially just release what's already been released, maybe wrap it up with some, you know, government stamp with some redacted tape put over some 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 splotches and satisfy the Rubio Commission uh, and so forth? Uh, or, or do you think, you know, they basically have to release something, as Eric Weinstein has said, you know, how do we how do we, you know, kind of uh, troll the, the, the state and say, oh, we've got all this information, we're going to release it, but then simultaneously yeah. release almost nothing? I mean, isn't that basically uh, beyond the pale of what a government could do to its citizens? Well, they haven't said that they've got all this information. Uh, Lou Elizondo has said he's got all the information, but he's not in the Pentagon anymore. He's uh, he you know, he left it uh, several years ago. Uh, various other people have said things, but the actual Pentagon hasn't really said that they've got lots of information they're going to release. They said they're going to cooperate with the inquiry uh, and they they're going to do what was mandated by Congress. So you've got to look at what what does the bill actually ask, and essentially it's asking for details of investigations into into UAPs, uh, which, you know, they, but they don't have to give you stuff that is classified. They could have a classified annex, which is a data repository of all the classified stuff. So uh, I don't think that they are obligated in any way to give some kind of huge data dump, if that's what Eric Weinstein was saying. Uh, I think what we're likely to get is is basically a an overview of the situation I hope it is one that uh, puts things in correct context and doesn't engage in speculation. Uh, I think it will probably talk about the real issues that we have with unidentified objects like you know, drones and airspace, airspace incursions and pilots uh, not being able to identify things. And um, I, I do not anticipate 
that things will change very much. Because I think what will happen is that the UFO fans are going to get angrier that not enough was released. And I will probably be a bit disappointed that they didn't actually clear <clears throat> things up a bit more and we'll just go on from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I've had on, as I said, uh, many different uh, perspectives from perspectives differing on the properties of Bitcoin from Michael Saylor to gold on Peter Schiff from proponents of string theory like Michio Kaku to opponents of string theory like Avi Loeb, who also has conjectures about alien mm. techno signatures. And maybe we could talk about that for a second. Um, UFOs are the ultimate form of techno signatures, right? So oh, yeah. it surprises me that that the foremost proponents of techno signatures like Avi and like Michio Kaku, who have thought about aliens in great detail and discussed that with me on my podcast, and I could put links and cards and so forth later on. Um, but, uh, but you know, they don't seem to be advocating that these data really are substantive for the existence of, of alien uh, presence or technology. What do you make of that? Yeah. Should that be dismissed or could that just be a case of, well, they're not pilots, so we shouldn't trust them? Well, no. I mean, you've got to look at the evidence. The evidence really isn't indicative of aliens. Uh, pe people are seeing things that... You know, they, they can't explain, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're aliens. You know, there's a multitude, multitude of possible explanations running all the way from uh, people misperceiving things uh, to various types of natural phenomena or things like foreign drones or even uh, you know, drones from like the kid down the road that's flying up over your house. There's all kinds of explanations that are generally a better fit than the idea of aliens. The aliens is a, an extraordinary explanation for any particular uh, given case. If you take like even the Nimitz encounter, which is presented as being one of the, the best evidence of aliens out there, but the idea that there's no simpler explanation than aliens is just, it's quite ludicrous really. There's, there's lots of explanations, right. yeah, even was... though they're perhaps, you know, a bit unlikely, some of them. Yeah. It, is alien visitors actually a more likely thing than these these other explanations? Right. I had this debate, you know, being a little bit too provocative, perhaps. But you know, there's a there's a notion in philosophy called abduction, and I joke about alien abduction. So abduction is the philosophical <laughs> reasoning tool of inference to the best explanation, and we use this as scientists. Yeah. People in the chat room have been pointing out that William of Ockham. You know, I'm probably saying that too much Hebrew with the chet. I shouldn't be doing that. But uh, William of Ockham, you know, said that the simplest explanation is probably the best. So my friend David Brin, who is a PhD astrophysicist at UC San Diego, renowned science fiction writer as well, sends you his regards. Uh, he's not in the chat room as far as I can tell. But he says, you know, tell Mick he's doing great uh, uh, work. But he's saying also something very important, Mick. He says, Mick, um, just re remember, you don't have to account for everything, you as a debunker. Yeah. You know, it's sort of said about like people that work on, you know, in defense, you, they, they have to be right every time. Uh, but you don't have to be right every time. In other words, you don't have to account for everything. Even he, David Brin says, even if there are some actually physical blob effects in the atmosphere that emit light and swerve and veer in non-Newtonian waves, there can be alternative explanations within the laws of physics as we know it. The purported behavior could be, a, uh, quote unquote, the same as a cat laser effect. OK, he's being shorthand. But in other words, there could be effects like if you say if you take a cat laser and you sh and you shine it towards Proxima Centauri over there and then you turn it around the opposite direction and shine it towards the Virgo uh, constellation over there, they'll actually receive these two bursts of light instantaneously. You know, each one will receive it. 
And then somehow they could reason, oh, well, they saw it at the same time. There must be faster than light travel. No, we just used a cat laser. And there's no there's mm-hmm. no need to distinguish or to provide extra you, uh, extra Einsteinian yeah. space-time violations. So in other words, he's saying there's a million ways, he says, to cause a physical blob in the atmosphere to emit light. And this is a very, you know, he's a PhD theoretical astrophysicist, Caltech and UCSD trained, to emit light and swerve and veer in non-Newtonian ways. He could do it. David Brin could do it with a half a million dollars worth of equipment, which suggests that the fellows responsible are, um, quote, human. So he's basically making this alien abduction, you know, abduction meaning reasoning to the simplest possible hypothesis, which is what I want. My audience is so brilliant. And I claim, you know, I've had nine Nobel Prize winners on this audience uh, is the best and brightest. And I'm going to you know, beg your indulgence. I'm sure your audience is just as bright. But I've had nine Nobel Prize winners on this uh, uh, on this show. More are coming. And uh, and we like to go extremely deep. And and the point is, we take things from a scientific perspective. Again, nothing would get. You know, I already have tenure, you know, which is why I can have people on the show, uh, you know, that I've had on, uh, and, and be controversial, perhaps. Uh, but uh, but the point is, the uh, the 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 process that I like to engage in is to stimulate curiosity. It's kind of a drug that's very powerful and very addictive to me personally, but also. I, I, I would like nothing more than to me to shortcut and hack the scientific method and know things about the future, right? And wouldn't you wouldn't we all yeah. like to know the physics of the future? We would. And if aliens arrived, you know, theoretically they could give it to us. And that is one of the great attractions of this the ET hypothesis. And it's you know, it ties into science fiction and uh, and popular portrayals of aliens as they are the the bearers of gifts great gifts for humanity and you know, they are going to basically ascend humanity to the next level and that's why people are so interested in that but you know i think that creates the willingness to overlook a lot of things and the willingness to go towards one particular explanation when there are other explanations which are perhaps less palatable and in some ways a little bit more complicated because you've got to actually you know think about uh, them rather than it just being a simple aliens uh, that that actually make a lot more sense and would have made more sense to to William of Ockham. And I actually, I don't, uh, I, I use a, a reasoning technique for figuring things out, which I call Ockhamic ranking, mm-hmm. uh, which is taking all, pothes- all possible hypotheses, everything that has been suggested and everything I can think of, and putting them into a list and then ranking them by which seems the most likely, basically. So it's a heuristic. You know, you, you see, does this seem more likely than others based on the evidence? Uh, if this was to go up the list a bit, what would need to happen for this to go up the list? So I have these lists of things. And so you start at the top, like uh, with the optical illusions or balloons or uh, another plane or uh, atmospheric effects or um, you know, CGI or the guy made a mistake. It was all a dream or he was lying and... Oh, aliens did it, or it's a, a glitch in the matrix. It's part of the simulation. So you have all the hypotheses, and you try to figure out which one of them is at the top. But you don't just focus on that one. You keep thinking about the other things on the list as well, because quite often you have one, two, or three things near the top, and one of them isn't a clear winner. But people like to pick a clear winner, and I think that's a mistake, is to just go with one hypothesis. Yes. So I would encourage people to Try this out. Make a list. Make a list of your hypotheses and give them a rough ranking. You can give them a percentage as to how likely you think it is to correct and just sort them into order. And then as new information arises, you take them and you change the order and new ones might bubble to the top and things might fall to the bottom. But you, know, you, you always keep things open as possibilities. 
Mm -hmm. So we're going to wrap up in the next few minutes. We'll take one or two more questions. Uh, We have one uh, here that is a question about whether or not there have been any kind of multi-sensor UAP with a radar signature been verified to go into the ocean, or has that only been claimed via Navy witnesses? In other words, has there been multiple sonar plus radar confirmation, or has that only been via um, the eyewitness data? This is something that you know people have claimed a few times that, that, that there's this one. Yeah, you know, there's these five observables of UFOs that uh, people say are, are signatures of, of of UFOs being something other than human technology, and and one of them is transmedium travel, which is something that flies in more or less equal speed through the air and through the water and possibly space too. Uh, and people have claimed that this has happened. People have claimed that there's radar data and then there's sonar data, but there's 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 no real good examples of this. If you ask people to point them out, there's, there's not actually uh, anything where you have any kind of continuous chain of evidence from from the radar to to the sonar. Uh, there, there was a recent case where uh, a video was released of uh, a sphere descending towards the horizon, and then. Uh, video of a radar screen was released which shows some targets on the radar appearing to disappear uh, off, off the screen, which they, they did disappear off the screen, like they just blinked out of existence and people have kind of said that is uh, evidence that something was going underwater, but it could equally have been uh, the object simply going out of the radar scan volume because it was a surface scanning radar and not actually something designed to uh, scan things up in the sky. So, you know, short answer, no, not that I know of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Um, so this has been so much fun. Uh, people are asking, you know, will you debate uh, Commander Fravor? I'm going to try sure. to make that. I'm going to make that happen if I can. First, I'm going to try to have a conversation, not a debate. I agree with my past mm-hmm. guest, uh, Lord Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal. Most debate is pointless, uh, but we should debate with love. Uh, we should use Occam's razor every now and then to get yeah. a close shave. Uh, but we should do so with comedy and sometimes a little comedy, uh, throw in a little bit of levity. It shouldn't always be so super serious. Um, and uh, and I really have enjoyed this. I want to ask people again, uh, please do subscribe to Mick West's channel and follow him. He is doing yeoman's work. I don't think you're getting uh, compensated. You know, we, we YouTubers no. don't make that much money for uh, views and likes and subscribes. But please do like, comment, and subscribe because it does tell the algorithm. There are algorithms of advanced artificial intelligence that do kind of control our lives, at least as YouTubers. So help us out if you can. Um, so Mick, uh, please, uh, please, I wish you great success. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. I do have on Seth Shostak, uh, whose book Confessions of an Alien Hunter is a wonderful book uh, from an astronomer who himself has searched for aliens who would love nothing better than aliens to be real. I'm going to get him to to comment on uh, some of the work that you've done and some of the work that uh, we are involved with um, in in microwave and radio astronomy and also physics of the future. And, uh, And then later, I do hope to have on some of these wonderful, very heroic patriotic pilots. I've been in contact with two of them. And, and hopefully I, I will be able to get at least one or maybe two of the pilots who are up close and personal on various occasions. I do think that they have been a lovely, um, you know, they've done incredible work. Um, and, and I think they should be, uh, they should be part of all the, all the conversation. And I don't think they have anything to gain either. In fact, I think that they've, they probably suffered a lot too for everything that they've mm-hmm. done and they should not because I think that they are heroes as I know you do too, Mick. So, I want to thank you, Mick, um, for everything you do. I want to recommend your book again. 
and your YouTube channel. So please, everybody, stay tuned for more episodes of Into the Impossible tomorrow with Dr. Brian Keating. And for now, signing off, and I encourage you all to keep watching the skies and watching the two YouTube channels. Good night, everybody. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.